Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground, joining movements around the globe that are opposing vestiges of settler colonialism, marches rallied at the White House on May 25th for African Liberation Day. They called on the Trump administration to end crippling sanctions against the southern African country of Zimbabwe. When you sanction a country, it interferes with that country's ability to get food and medicine to its people so that they die. That is an act of war, sisters and brothers. And in D.C., advocates for quality health care vowed to continue the battle for the district's only full-service hospital in its entire East End. At issue is the role of a public hospital in the nation's capital, where there is rapid gentrification and tremendous wealth inequality. Right now, United Medical Center is still a city-owned facility. And so if we're talking about doing any type of massive cuts to services, Right, so that would impede people in that community from receiving care and massive layoffs. The city needs to be a part of those conversations. All these stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, on May 25th, it was the turn of red, black, and green black power flags to wave in front of the White House. Marchers from a coalition of organizations from around the country rallied there for African Liberation Day and called on the Trump administration to end economic sanctions against the African country of Zimbabwe. Protesters, some carrying the red, black, green, and yellow flag of Zimbabwe, said that the sanctions are designed to punish Zimbabwe for winning its war for independence and seizing farmland from the white settler minority. Andre Powell of the organization Struggle La Lucha and the Socialist Unity Party told those gathered that economic sanctions are a form of war. U.S. imperialism and its financial empire imposes sanctions on every country that won't do their bidding. It doesn't matter whether the country is Venezuela, Iran, or the long-held, decades-long sanctions against Cuba, yet Cuba still thrives. More voices of and about African Liberation Day here in the D.C. region later in the show. Now, in D.C., the usual battle for what narrative will dominate was especially fierce this week, with much of Congress and the corporate media still parsing the Mueller report on the actions of the Trump presidential campaign. And on the other hand, almost all of the Democratic presidential candidates are focusing on other issues that matter to the American people. For example, this week, the Bernie Sanders organization, Our Revolution, launched its Medicare for All Emergency Ambulance Tour. Organizers say the tour is designed to go after politicians who are unwilling to stand up for the human right to health care. The first stop on Thursday was in Maryland, in the district of Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who organizers say has stonewalled multiple attempts to pass Medicare for All. Our Revolution Executive Director Joseph Javargis said that despite the fact that 82% of Democrats support universal health care, and despite the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives, a minority of Democrat elected officials support Medicare for All. Does it do us any good to elect Democrats who refuse to advance popular legislation? No. Does it do any good to elect Democrats who don't uh, don't uh, stand up for the will of the people? No. And does it make any sense for us to elect Democrats who refuse to support Medicare for all? No. No. That's right. And that's why our Medicare for all emergency ambulance tour is on the road. We are taking our fight directly to the congressional districts of Democrats, those Democrats who are backed by insurance companies, those Democrats who are bankrolled by pharmaceutical companies, we're taking this tour directly to them and we're calling the question, you're either with the sick and the suffering, you're either with the people or you're on the wrong side. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? The Medicare for All emergency ambulance is planning stops in Texas, Wisconsin, and other states before a final stop at the Democratic presidential debate in Miami, Florida, on June 26th and 27th. A Maryland man, identified as Arnav Gupta, 
set himself on fire in a busy tourist area near the White House on Wednesday and by that evening had died of his injuries. Images of Gupta standing upright while engulfed in orange flames went viral on social media. His family had alerted Montgomery County Police after he went missing Wednesday morning. The, the family was concerned about his physical and mental well-being, and police were looking for him at the time he set himself on fire. In climate news, the organization Greenpeace gave each Democratic presidential candidate a climate grade this week based on their positions on the Green New Deal and on no fossil fuels. Governor Jay Inslee and Senators Bernie Sanders and Cory Booker received the highest grades, while the worst grades were earned by former Vice President Joe Biden, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, and former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. And in the latest installment of Orwellian, D.C., it was reported this week that the Department of Energy sent out a press release in which it referred to America's fracked natural gas as, quote, molecules of freedom, end quote, or freedom gas that is being shipped around the globe and actually worsening Earth's climate catastrophe. Abby Zimet, a columnist for Column Dreams, wrote that, quote, this latest imbecility reportedly originated with the alleged Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, who earlier this month signed an order doubling U.S. liquefied natural gas shipments to Europe. At a press briefing, he said that by helping European nations diversify their energy supply away from Russia, the U.S. was, quote, delivering a form of freedom, end quote, to them. And then when a reporter Riley suggested the term freedom gas, a small, dumb, unironic light bulb evidently went off in Perry's wee brain, and the rest is stupid, jingoistic history, Zimet writes. She adds, we are now beyond parody, Orwell, The Onion, and the many wisecracks offered about freedom gas being second cousin to freedom fries, only more stinky. And finally, in culture and media, just as the Trump administration has put the brakes on placing the abolitionist Harriet Tubman on the front of the $20 bill, Brooklyn artist Donald Wall has created a 3D rubber stamp that replaces the face of the genocidaire and slave owner Andrew Jackson with the face of Tubman. And yes, the stamp is all legal. Wall has about 400 stamps in circulation, and you can get more information at TubmanStamp.com. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn on Palestine, Yemen, U.S. arms sales, and more. Stay with us. Just now. I ain't no psychiatrist, I ain't no doctor. 
this is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for more international news, I'm joined by Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst. And Gerald, I'm not sure if you heard the coverage uh, from African Liberation Day here in D.C. There was a focus on Zimbabwe and people rallying outside the White House to demand the U.S. end sanctions on Zimbabwe, comparing it to what's happening to Cuba and what's happening to Venezuela. I think there's something to that. In fact, I was warning some of my friends in Venezuela that I understand why they want to negotiate with the U.S.-backed opposition in Oslo. But if Zimbabwe is any indication, even if there is a compromise with the opposition, as happened in Zimbabwe, sanctions will not necessarily be lifted. That is to say, in Zimbabwe, the decision was made in Washington to drive the ruling party, the Party of National Liberation, SANU-PF, out of power altogether. And ousting Robert Mugabe, the a founder of ZANU-PF, was deemed to be insufficient. So I understand why there was this protest at the White House about sanctions, because it's really driven the Zimbabwean economy into the ditch. It's having knock-on effects in a negative sense throughout the region, impacting negatively South Africa, as Zimbabwean refugees stream into South Africa, putting strain on that country's economy. So I salute those who protested in front of the White House. So also in terms of international news, which is what we're talking about, President Trump's senior advisor and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was in Israel this week to push his so-called deal of the century to supposedly resolve the Palestinian conflict. And he arrived just as his, I don't know, play uncle or whatever, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was not able to form a government and they will have to have new elections in Israel. So everything I've heard about this so-called deal of the century is bad, that it's trying to offer the Palestinians some kind of economic reforms to basically let them turn their back on their rights, uh, international human rights to their land and the right to return and, and everything else that is rightfully theirs. It's really a bad joke. It would be even worse, but for the fact that we're talking about people's lives and people's land. That is to say, the idea is is that there will be no movement on the idea of Palestinian statehood. There will be no movement on the question of illegal Israeli settlements on Palestinian land, no movement on the right of return, but there will be uh, so-called financial concessions, that is to say, defined a few quizzlings, can be bought off by a few pieces of silver. It's quite unfortunate, but in some ways it represents the corruption at the heart of the Trump administration and also at the heart of the Netanyahu administration as well. As you know, Mr. Netanyahu is going to have to call for new elections in a few months because he was not able to put together a coalition government as muster. And so there is a possibility that if he is not able to prevail in these next elections that are coming in a few months, uh, he may have to face the music in terms of all the corruption charges that are hanging like a sword of Damocles over his head. And we may have the ultimate joy of seeing Mr. Netanyahu in the orange jumpsuit. Well, one of the the points raised by the people rallying this weekend was the fact that they wanted to hold the Congressional Black Caucus accountable. They want the CBC members to challenge not only this administration, but the executive branch in general and their fellow members of Congress to look at these sanctions and oppose them. As is the case with NAACP and a good deal of the black leadership on the elite level in Washington, Foreign policy is not a strong suit of the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, of course, there are exceptions, such as Congresswoman Barbara Lee of Oakland, Berkeley, uh, who voted against the war in Afghanistan in 2001. But generally speaking, this idea of opposing sanctions against Zimbabwe or trying to take a more progressive position on Palestinian rights, that seems to be beyond the scope and the kin 
of a good deal of the Congressional Black Caucus, and I must say they're not doing their constituents any favors by taking these kinds of positions. In fact, they're actively harming their positions. And once again, I have to salute those who are protesting in Washington about Zimbabwe sanctions because this is an issue that's much that is quite worthy of protest. Yeah, and I mentioned Congress because this week Trump did a go around Congress and uh, approved eight billion dollars in arms sales to Saudi Arabia, uh, which is carrying on this genocidal war against Yemen. And I'm not really sure if there's been much. Maybe it just hasn't been covered, but I haven't really seen or heard much outcry from Congress. Well, that is a shame and a sin because we all know that those billions of dollars for arms sales are ultimately going to be targeted at Iran. It's part of this harebrained scheme of Trump and Mr. Bolton, the national security advisor, to weaken and destabilize the Tehran-based regime, and in fact to strengthen Saudi despotism, uh, which is now notorious in light of their acknowledged role in the slaying of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And I would hope that the Congressional Black Caucus in particular would raise an insistent voice against these armed sales, which are a blow against international peace and security. Thank you to uh, Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, for your insights this week. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Ditto, and thank you.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, Tuesday closed the latest tumultuous chapter in the ongoing struggle for quality health care for all residents of D.C. On that day, the D.C. Council was set to vote on aspects of the district's budget. And, and as part of that budget, at least $25 million was recently and suddenly cut from the United Medical Center, the city's only full-service hospital east of the river, serving sections of the city with the poorest residents and where a majority of the residents are African-American. On the grounds, Lydia Curtis was at the Wilson Building that day, which began with a morning rally by nurses and other health care providers and their supporters. DC nurses are demanding that money be put in the budget to restore the hospital to full functioning and not plan for it to be closed. Do not close United Medical Center, formerly known as Greater Southeast. Put the money back in the budget. Now let's hear from Reverend Hagler, pastor of Plymouth Congregational Church, United Church of Christ. You cannot create an apartheid medical system, and that's what they have done in this city, where those who are well-heeled and those who have the resources have the health care, but those who are at risk and poor are being denied equal access to health care. I don't know what you call that other than segregated health care or right. apartheid health care. Let's call it for what it is. And the fact is, is that it begins to take away money where money is needed, where money is vitally needed, because it's serving some of the most acute health care problems in the city. That's why you've got to make the investment. You can't wait for a hospital to come on in 2023, and we need medical care now, effectively and efficiently able to do its job. We know that this kind of $25 million cut is really a death spiral for that hospital. That's right. That's right. Now you close Provident Hospital. That's right. The D.C. General create a strain. Provident Hospital create a bigger strain. And now we're going to close United Medical Center. What in the hell are these folks doing? They're supposed to be leaders of the city. But evidently, the only thing they care about is business and big business and they don't have any regard for the people of this city. But we're here to remind them that we ain't going nowhere. All right. Even after this vote, we're still going to be on them. We're going to be challenging them. We're going to be beating the hell out of them. We're going to be agitating. We're going to continue to stand up and show up and be out there to remind folks that we demand justice and nothing less. So let us continue to struggle no matter what happens in here today. The fight is on. That's right. That's right. That's right. The fight is on. The nurses and UMC workers then headed inside the Wilson building to the D.C. Council meeting, a highlight of which was Trayon White introducing an amendment to restore some of the $25 million that had been cut from the hospital by Council Member Vincent Gray, Chairman of the Health Committee. Chairman, uh, just this holiday weekend, there were multiple shootings and stabbings in, in my ward. A young honor roll student died. Uh, and three others were sent to the hospital in one of the incidents. A few hours later, there were several other shootings. Just yesterday, there were seven people shot. We're in a situation where it's it's life and death for a lot of residents east of Anacostia River, and so the hospital conversation is a priority for us. While we are anticipating a brand-new facility coming to the east end a hospital, we are not in favor of slashing funds at this time that, so that the hospital can be in We want to support the nurses that are there, the staff that are there, and leave the confidence that we are, still believe in giving high-quality service to the residents of the District of Columbia. The hospital currently provides emergency, behavioral health, long-term nursing, surgical, and other services to residents of Ward 7 and 8. 
it's important to highlight that there has been significant pushback by hospital stakeholders regarding the patient count that was cited by the Committee on Health. The stakeholders assert a four-day, four-daily total of 503 upwards of 400 patients from a number cited by the Committee on Health. The Committee on Health's numbers does not include patients seen in the emergency room, in behavioral health, and in other skilled nursing facilities. It is almost 300 patients not counted. While the council is correct and focus on maintaining the fiscal health of the hospital, which I think we should do, our focus should be on determining the level of funding that is necessary for UMC to remain a viable health option for residents east of the Anacostia River. Because what I do know that on Sunday, when I arrived to the scene at approximately 11 a.m. after a known shooting had occurred, a, a woman who was, who was driving a car drove her, ca drove her car to the nearest closer hospital, and that was United Medical Center. While I'm not sure that $40 million is the exact number, my staff witnessed that $25 million was taken from it. While we didn't want to take money from places that we felt like that was needed, that was suggested by Councilmember Gray, there are some areas that we did focus on uh, to ensure that we put some money back. And that total amount was $3,140,839, which is still a drop in the bucket when we're talking about a healthcare system east of Anacostia River. We cannot say as a council that we are working to provide equity to our residents by completely cutting services as a method to get a new hospital. Supporting this amendment shows you care enough to provide services to residents living east of the Anacostia River and in hopes to build a new hospital. We need to ensure that the new hospital will have a full range of services to include a trauma unit and not a glorified clinic. But that's another conversation. Another 30 seconds, Chairman. Without objection. Restoring funding, well, a portion of the funding is what's proposed to UMC is belief that residents in Ward 7 and 8 matters and their lives are important. I encourage my colleagues to support this amendment. Uh, Councilmember uh, Tran White? Yes, thank you. Um, I do want to say this uh, because one of the narratives is that the hospital is not closing, but it's equivalent to taking the oxygen out of somebody's body and putting them on life support. It will not be able to function at minimum capacity, taking $25 million from the budget. And what we've done, the narrative is also that I cut money from these different programs. I didn't cut anything. I restored the money that was cut to, to the hospital. So the money was already in the hospital for $40 million, and it was cut. And so what I did was try to do my due diligence to find things that we can put back in because when I have to go, I was born there, so I have a personal uh, feeling towards this particular hospital. I live about 45 steps from this hospital. And I know that residents in, in Ward 8, you know, uh, and Ward 7 use this hospital on a daily basis. Because some of them don't have the money to travel across the city. And as we saw from a lady who suffered a gunshot wound, with a 9-year-old in the back passenger seat suffering from a, a bullet wound, her daughter in the other seat suffering from two shots, three shots, she drove to this hospital. So picture she had to take that same ride to Upper Northwest on her car, already wounded herself. We have to look at the life and death uh, of the decisions we are making. And this is a drop in the bucket to restore some funding to this. And so I don't see what the whining and the crying is about when we're saying, that we're talking about $25 million that was split up all to all these different areas. Are they good causes? Yes, they are. But at the expense of residents, we have to go to this hospital every day. We have living people in the hospital right now. That's in the bed, in the emergency room right now. They need services. So we, if we move the doctors, the nurses, the staff, and the faith in this hospital, this hospital is dead. I urge my colleagues to support this amendment. And I, I move to a vote and a roll call, Chairman. I ask to close the vote and ask for a roll call, Chairman. I appreciate the timely request. Uh, is there further discussion? Mr. Chairman. Councilmember Silverman, second round. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me read from a letter that um, the Chief of Staff from UMC wrote to all of us. She wrote, eliminating inpatient services at UMC before the new hospital is ready to accept patients would be a grave disservice to the residents of Ward 7 and 8 and will deprive them of their last access to inpatient hospital services east of the Anacostia River. 
basically, she says, further increasing the racial and economic divide in our city. That is what is at stake. I just want to be very clear about what we are doing. So we are negotiating for an operator for a new hospital. We do not have an agreement right now. So once again, what does everyone agree on? We agree that we need a state-of-the-art health care system and hospital on the east side in Ward 7 and 8. Um, so the issue is not about building the new hospital. The issue is about making sure we have hospital services that are going to meet the needs of our residents until that hospital, new hospital, is built. That is the issue. And I will say once again, and this is what is so demoralizing today, is we are pitting residents against each other. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. If there's no further discussion, we have this roll call for us. Um, roll call. Uh, Councilmember, um, Madam Secretary, please call the roll. Councilmember McDuffie. I'm going to vote uh, for the amendment. I'm voting yes. I'm voting with the folks at the hospital. Councilmember McDuffie votes yes. Chairman Mendelson. No. Chairman Mendelson votes no. Councilmember Nadeau. Councilmember Nadeau votes yes. Councilmember Silverman. Yes. Councilmember Silverman votes yes. Councilmember Todd. Yes. Councilmember Todd votes yes. Councilmember Robert White. Yes. Councilmember Robert White votes yes. Councilmember Treyon White. Yes, yes. Councilmember Treyon White votes yes. Councilmember Allen. Yes. Councilmember Allen votes yes. Councilmember Bonds. Yes. Councilmember Bonds votes yes. Councilmember Che. Present. Councilmember Che is recorded as present. Councilmember Evans. Yeah. Councilmember Evans votes yes. Councilmember Gray. No. Councilmember Gray votes no. And Councilmember Grasso. Yes. Councilmember Grasso votes yes. Mr. Chairman, there are 10 yeses, two noes, and one present. The amendment passes. After Tuesday's vote, I spoke to Yane Barner, Vice President of 1199 SCIU Healthcare Workers East which represents many health care providers at UMC. She said that the vote resulted in the restoration of about $7 million to UMC. And she spoke to me about the status of building a new hospital in Ward 7 and 8, what will happen at UMC right now, and what she foresees happening going forward. And so right before these hospital funds were cut, another action was taken by the D.C. Council to basically repeal their passage of that East End Health Care Act. Yes. So Vincent Gray and his health committee, he repealed the entire East End Health Equity Act. And that included, there were some um, benefits in there around coming up with a partnership with uh, Howard University. There were things in there around universal health services, working with the existing four unions at United Medical Center to come up with language around neutrality, there were several things in that bill that was repealed through the, the health care committee under Councilmember Gray. And so, like I said, it was done so, so abruptly and kind of somewhat at the last minute. And so I don't know if folks are even uh, aware of that on a larger scale. And so with that, he did put in, um, and this is what I was referencing before, he did put in basically that there would be a public hearing to kind of talk about, because um, he heard the concerns of the community of them not being included in the process. They're calling it a certificate of need process, but my understanding of what a certificate need process is, it's usually a three- to six-month process, several hearings that are done with the community and other agencies to figure out exactly what services a particular community would need in its hospital. And so to say now you're going to do a certificate of need process when really you're just having one hearing to discuss, to let folks come in and talk about services they need. So that Vincent, Council Member Gray did that as well. Right. Okay. So we do know that in the beginning, Universal Health Services had perhaps balked at the idea of those provisions in the legislation, that they did not want Howard University medical students to continue to learn at the hospital, and also they did not want to be obligated to honor any 
contractual arrangements with the current unions. So when I heard that about that, I just thought that perhaps Gray was responding to universal health services. You're 100, 100% correct. They, they, re- they referenced it as a poison pill that us and, um, you know, the unions, the current unions at United Medical Center and Howard University, they, they referenced it. I, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure it was Council Member Vincent Gray who referenced it as a poison pill. And so I think him, by repealing that whole entire East End Health Equity Act, he was responding and, um, to universal health services, to, to, to their needs. So going forward, I know the nurses were out on Tuesday and members of 1199 and other health care providers were out um, at the Wilson Building on Tuesday. So what happens now? So now we're going to continue to lobby council members and the mayor as well, just having conversations, making sure that we're holding them accountable through this process. Because right now, United Medical Center is still a city-owned facility. And so if we're talking about doing any type of massive cuts to services, right, so that would impede people in that community from receiving care and massive layoffs, the city needs to be a part of those conversations. And so we want to just make sure it's done properly and fairly for the community and also for the employees at the hospital. And so we'll continue to rally and lobby around those, around those issues. Okay. Well, I've been speaking with Yane Barner. She's vice president at 1199 SEIU United Healthcare Workers East, covering the Washington, D.C. area. Thank you for joining me, Yane. Thank you, Esther. Thank you for having me.
won't you say his name? John Crawford, say his name. John Crawford, say his name. John Crawford, say his name. John Crawford, won't you say his name? Michael Brown, say his name. Michael Brown, say his name. Michael Brown, say his name. Michael Brown, won't you say his name? Say his name. In the state of Maryland, African descent make up nearly 30% of the total population, the fifth highest concentration of African people in the entire nation. Yet, despite this concentration of people, we still face many contradictions of economic crisis, police terror, gentrification, miseducation, mass and generational incarceration. The black population in this city and state and much of the nation are tied to political misleadership, the capitalist class, and imperialists draped under the values of a government that inculcates white supremacy as an institution. Because of this and many reasons, we found it necessary to draft the platform agenda that puts our interests and communities' needs first, without the need to support any imperialist party which has not improved our condition nor protected the gains we fought so hard for, for during our last civil rights movement era. We have been ignored, abused, and exploited by a two-party system that served the interests of the ruling capitalist class. 
Our lack of clarity about our economic and political needs reduces us to cheerleaders and supporters of white, black, and brown operatives of political parties that represent empires and not the black and working class needs. For that, we ask people to take a look at our agenda and our platform at our information table in the back and also at the, at the Maryland Council of Elders table as well. Our contribution to the liberation of our people is the building of an independent black worker-led electoral party, a party built around the needs of people over capital and led by black working class who have long suffered at the hands of American ruling class. The Ujima People's Progress Party is an anti-imperialist, an anti-colonialist, an anti-capitalist, an anti-racist, and an anti-sexist and pro-worker, pro-self-determination, and pro-liberation party. We fight for the social and economic justice, locally, nationally, and internationally. The party is just not concerned with choosing candidates and running in elections, just like a union can't be concerned with conditions on the workplace or a black social group concerned with just its members. We have to engage with the struggles that impact our community as a whole. We are striving to be a 365 day a year party that organizes independent institutions as well as participates in fight back campaigns and programs for justice like Brother Tyrone Bose. In our 11 point platform, we stand for an agenda that empowers black workers and the black community. We call for full employment for all those willing and able to work. We stand for the inflammation and living wage and the right to a union to lift working people out of poverty. We oppose gentrification and instead call for development that provides economic opportunity commerce, housing, and jobs within the black community. We stand for community control of housing, the police, education, health care, to ensure we create a healthy and safe community. We stand for full restoration of the civil rights for ex-felons and the inner discriminatory laws that make it difficult for ex-felons to become gainfully employed. Last but not least, we stand for peace, social justice, equality, equal access for all residents of our states. And Andre Powell, Iman Essiet, and Brandon Walker speaking on or about African Liberation Day 2019 will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to Professor Gerald Horn, Lydia Curtis, and the organization Struggle La Lucha for Socialism, the Ujima People's Progress Party, and the December 12th Movement for their contributions to today's show. The music we played this hour included Think by Aretha Franklin, Someday We'll All Be Free by Donny Hathaway, and Hell You Talking About by Janelle Monet. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. A special thanks to all our supporters on Patreon. Thank you. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.